This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Just about an hour ago, it crossed about the CDC to say vaccinated people can often dish, ditch, ditch. It's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, masks indoors. That is a big deal. And listen, this could potentially be a game changer in terms of maybe how people think about getting the vaccine because it does potentially significantly change your world and how yeah. you go about it. Say that, hey, there's a big point in getting the vaccine. I don't have to wear this mask anymore. Well, let's get right to it with uh, Dr. Bill Moss, professor of epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, also executive director of the International Vaccine Access Center. Joining us now on the phone from Baltimore, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Moss, it's great to have you with us, especially on a day when we learn this striking news from the CDC. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what your reaction was when you saw it. Yes, thanks, Tim, for, thanks, Tim, for having me. And, uh, you know, I think this is really big news. And uh, Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, was talking about updated guidance uh, pretty recently. And this is it. And I think this is really important. Uh, as Carol said, you know, this can really help motivate people to get vaccinated. It's not going to motivate everyone. Um, and we still have a ways to go in improving access and addressing other causes of concern for getting vaccines. But being able to uh, shed your mask indoors is a, is a real motivator. Hey, Bill, Dr. Moss, does it make you, though, a little apprehensive that maybe we're doing it a little early? Well, it, it's a tough balance. Mm. And you know, I would say, you know, there are still some communities in the United States where there's a lot of virus transmission. And so the risk uh, may be higher, uh, it will be higher in, in those communities. But the fact that we're seeing cases come down, uh, and we still want to see them come down much further, um, and vaccination levels going up, although the, the pace has slowed, um, that combination uh, really makes us safer. And I, I think people needed a, a motivating factor. They needed to see some of the real uh, tangible benefits of getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So does this get us to 70% President Biden's goal by the 4th of July, 70% of American adults getting a shot? I hope, I, hope, I, I think it'll contribute to him, but I, I think there's still more to do. We know that there are some Americans who want to get vaccinated and are just having trouble doing it for, for a variety of reasons. And so we need to do have uh, greater efforts to bring vaccines to people. Um, and we also need to do more to try to address the various concerns, whether it's about you know, the safety of the vaccine or, or people just underestimating the risk of COVID-19 to themselves or their family. We still have more work to do, but I think this, this will help. So how does this play out? Because here's what Dr. Rochelle Walensky just said. The CDC is updating our guidance for fully vaccinated people. Anyone who is fully vaccinated can participate in indoor or outdoor activities, large or small, without wearing a mask or physical distancing. If you are fully vaccinated, you can start doing the things that you would stop doing because of the pandemic. Uh, once you are fully vaccinated, two weeks after your last dose, you can shed your mask. So does that mean we should just be going to the grocery store and taking our masks off in the grocery store? 
I think this is this will still be a, a personal decision. I mean that there, uh, uh, Dr. Walensky is really trying to, to normalize the lives uh, of people who are fully vaccinated. Bring us back really to, to pre-pandemic uh, situation uh, for again for those who are fully vaccinated. But we we know the vaccines aren't a hundred percent protective, uh, at least against infection and mild disease. We still have to monitor uh, for variants that may escape some of, some of the immunity conferred by the vaccine. That's still of concern. We haven't seen real solid evidence that that's happened yet. Um, but I, I, think, uh, I think people will make a, a personal decision about their risk. You know, one other, one other thing that we should talk about is, you know, this past year, we've seen the lowest levels of, of influenza virus right. infections, respiratory yeah. mm-hmm. syncytial virus infections, and that's because of the masking and, and public health precautions that we've taken. So I think we as a society need to look hard as to whether we want to continue some of these, particularly during influenza season or other respiratory disease seasons, which are largely in the wintertime. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting that you say that, and I thought about it uh, as I am, you know, walking a little bit more around the city and just thinking about this past year and thinking about how none of us really in our family got any kind of serious colds or, or, or flu. That That's true. Um, having said that, you made the point that the vaccines are not 100% effective, and we're figuring it out when, too, the immunity goes away. So... I don't know whether it's in a few months, we're going to have to think about boosters, correct? Just got about 40 seconds, then we'll come back and talk some more. Yes, uh, we still don't know yet the uh, the duration of immune protection, exactly as you said. But we are going to start having to think about boosters, either because of waning immunity or because of uh, the emergence and, and widespread uh, transmission of, of variants. Hmm. So yesterday we got some more... Uh, on 12 to 15 year olds that uh, a group of medical experts saying children in that age group can safely take the COVID-19 vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech. How important is it though, Bill, to getting kids vaccinated to us getting to herd immunity or at least closer to it or more herd immunity than less? Yes, it certainly, Carol, gets us closer to herd immunity. There are approximately 17 million children in that age group in the United States, and you're exactly right. Uh, Food and Drug Administration issued an emergency use authorization, and then we got the CDC approval and endorsement to go. Reason why it's important for children to be vaccinated. First, it's to protect the child. We, we know children have our lower risk of severe disease, but millions of children have been infected in the United States thousands hospitalized, even hundreds died, and some children are at risk for an inflammatory syndrome, even if they've had very mild COVID. Right. The, sec- the second reason is just to help our children get back to normal life, summer camp, get to school. Um, and then lastly, really to protect our families and friends and communities, because really anyone susceptible to infection is a potential transmitter of infection. Dr. Moss, what's a, a realistic way for us to think about how even younger age groups can get access to the vaccine. Is it pretty typical that if something is safe for 12 to 15 year olds, it can be safe for eight to 11 year olds and safe for two to seven year olds? Is that a realistic way to think about it? it, it that's, that's a reasonable assumption, Tim, but it, it still needs to be studied. And so uh, the, the vaccine manufacturers, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson are all studying uh, the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. 
adults, in younger and younger children. This is a typical way that vaccines are studied. You start in, uh, in adults and you kind of work your way down in, in groups of children. So we're seeing studies in, in children 5 to 11 years of age and then uh, you know, younger ages, 2 years to, uh, to 4 years of age and even under two, six months, two years of age. So um, what we have to, what has to be looked at very carefully though, as we get to younger children is the dosing. And so all the vaccine manufacturers look to see whether a, a smaller dose of the vaccine uh, will, will also be safe and effective. Vaccinating the world is proving to be a lot more difficult and maybe not as a surprise. Um, why is it important uh, Bill, that the U.S. turn its attention to vaccinating the world, and what does the U.S. need to be doing? Yes, Kara, I think this is the most important question facing the United States right now. Uh, it's understandable that we focused on our own population. We had a terrible pandemic uh, in the United States, but I think we're reaching a point where we really need to focus on the world. You know, the bottom line, it's simple. Uh, we're not safe here in the United States until this pandemic is controlled. And it's a global pandemic. The more the virus uh, is transmitted, uh, particularly at the levels like we're seeing in countries like India or Brazil, the more chances it has to mutate. And this is the time for the United States to step up, really be a leader in the global fight against the pandemic. And that includes, you know, donating excess vaccine doses, um, uh, allowing, you know, materials to go to other countries to, to manufacture vaccines, supporting the COVAX facility, which is the, the, uh, the basically the mechanism to get vaccines to low and middle income countries. I'm I'm wondering about variants and vaccines because the narrative has has been for, for months now. One way to think about the U.S.'s responsibility in getting the vaccine under control around the world is to think about it from a selfish perspective and make sure that variants and variants that can't penetrate vaccines don't come here. Is there any evidence that that could or will happen? Well, what we've seen so far, Tim, is, you know, basically the studies are supporting uh, the fact that the, our current vaccines uh, authorized for use in the United States are effective against the kind of current uh, panel of, of their there is some reduced uh, uh, protection um, or, or, you know, they require uh, higher levels of, of our protective bodies for some of the variants. For example, the variant uh, that was first identified in South Africa, the B1351 variant. But in general, all the, all the current vaccines are uh, effective, particularly against severe disease, against these variants. So we don't have to panic yet, mm. but we need to be very diligent in, in, in monitoring the situation. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Dr. Bill Moss, Professor of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Executive Director of the International Vaccine Access Center, and of course the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Are you going to wear your mask now? Yeah, I'm kind of comfortable with it. Yeah. I will say, though, when I was walking the streets and I had a bag of potato chips, I was kind of munching on it, kind of had the mask oh, back well, and forth. Outside's a different story. <laughs> you know. But my daughter, who's 18, she's like, put the mask back on. <laughs> okay. It's like rough. Okay. Uh, no noted. 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 This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
Well, the Bloomberg Big Take also happens to be the cover story of this week's magazine. The cover image is pretty incredible. Uh, my producer, Paul Brennan, talking about it earlier. I mean, it was just, it's amazing. you got to check it out. It's also the most read story on the Bloomberg today. And Tim, it's about the former immigrant kid who is now worth billions, the so-called Pied Piper of the recent blank check craze. We're talking about Chamath Palyapatiya. Yeah, if you're on Twitter and you you know follow Chamath much, you, he doesn't need any introduction. As we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, he's kind of like a one-name person at this point. Point. Joel Weber's editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us live here. And Zeke Fox is finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone, but he is right here at our New York City Bureau. Joel, this is just a, a fantastic read. And, and, and my big takeaway is that even though Chamath's uh, SPACs have really struggled this year, Chamath is going to be totally fine. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of been the, the, the real kind of the kernel of the story that um, uh, that Zeke, I think, hit on. Um, you know, SPACs for a lot of people um, came out of nowhere and have become just a theme of the past year. One of the weirdest years of our lives, and SPACs were one of the things that, um, in finance at least, became a thing that everyone was watching. And, and Shamaf obviously has been a huge proponent of them. He says he wants to do as many as 26. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a, a, a thing that I'm going to ask Zeke about here, which is look like. SPACs can be really lucrative for the sponsors, but Zeke, how do they? How does it look like they end up working out for for the rest of us? So I looked into one SPAC that Chamas promoted this year called Clover, and when he was taking it public, he was pitching it sort of to the everyday investor as a can't miss. I'm going to 10x your money kind of thing, and since then. If you bought it on the day that he pitched it, since then it's dropped by about uh, a quarter. Of course, you have to wait and see uh, how it works out in the long run. But the real thing that with SPACs is that as a sponsor, uh, Chamath gets 20% of the SPAC as a kind of fee called the promote. Um, so he's out there saying, I've kind of discovered the secret to being rich. I'm going to let the little guy into these private deals that have gotten me where I am. Um, and my interests are aligned with yours. But meanwhile, really, he's making his money off these fees, and the stock would really have to crash very low before he would be in the red. Well, Zeke, what did you find out about Clover Health when you were doing this reporting? So the pitch for Clover Health is that it was a tech company that was going to revolutionize healthcare. And if you weren't listening that closely, you might not even really pick up that it was... Uh, really a health insurance company. And, of course, you can find this all out from its securities filings if you're the kind of person who reads those. But really it's a Medicare Advantage plan that almost exclusively operates in New Jersey, not really a very big company. And from talking to former employees, one that's uh, had a lot of trouble hitting its growth targets in the past, expanding the way it wanted to. Now, of course, they have this pitch now that They've invented a tech tool that's sort of the culmination of, you know, a decade of their existence that's really going to bring together all their machine learning technology to analyze patient data and recommend treatments, and that this is what's really going to make the company take off. Um, But I hope that the investors that are buying it understand that, you know, this is a pretty risky new business rather than something that is, you know, guaranteed to go up. Right. And you say decade in business, still losing money, uh, so that if it was being taken public, 
you know, and it was going on a road show, you would certainly see Zeke, it become under a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, that's sort of the appeal of SPACs for a lot of companies is when you go public, the underwriters are worried about getting sued if they make projections that are wrong. So you're almost forced to dwell on your recent results. So if you're a company like Clover that's losing huge amounts of money every year, but you're on the verge of a turnaround, you say, um, when you do a SPAC, you can talk more about your great future prospects and you can hopefully investors won't dwell on your recent losses. And there's been just like a huge wave of these unprofitable uh, companies with big dreams going public through SPACs this year. And for a while, it just seemed like all of them went up. I mean, almost people were talking about it like it was almost a new asset class. You could just invest in SPACs and get great returns. Well, and then um, gravity kind of came in and, and <laughs> things have changed a little bit um, and hence the, the SPACs go splat cover. Um, Zeke, though, I wanted to ask because despite what, what we'll publish in the magazine and um, despite maybe that data, it doesn't seem like it might um, stop Chamath, right? And even as you were working on this story, he announced that there was another one coming um, with a certain gym chain. Uh, so how do, you, how do you make sense of, uh, of, of where Chamath could go with his vision of, of SPACs? So he has turned himself into kind of a brand name like Goldman Sachs. And if you're a company that wants to go public, maybe you hire a bank to do an IPO. And now people are aware that there's another option that you could merge with one of Polyhopatia's SPACs. And my big question is whether the brand name can survive one or two bad deals. Um, if it was, it was built on just sort of this to the moon idea, um, is he going to lose his appeal if he has a mixed track record? Uh, like anyone who's bringing companies public is likely to have in the long run, you can't all be winners. Um, but you're right. He's just the other day. Bloomberg News broke that he is planning to bring the gym chain Equinox public. Um, but we'll, he hasn't raised any new blank check companies for a while. So that's something to keep an eye on. If he's uh, raises more, and gets closer to his goal of 26, like he said. It's kind of like, you know, SPACs, are they a venture capital pool where you're playing around? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that maybe a lot of them will ultimately play out. But do investors kind of totally get that versus if you go through the IPO traditional route, you're vetted a lot differently. Well, and to Zeke's point, like how many people get hurt along the way? And what does yeah. that do for future interest in the same things, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a great read and it is a great cover. <laughs> We've been talking about it in the newsroom, Joel. Well, it started with me saying SPACs go splat. And then I think we proceeded to look at as many possible versions of the same idea as possible until we got it right. So the one you settled on is awesome. <laughs> it's really, really wonderful. All right. Joel Weber, of course, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. That is the cover story. It's also the Bloomberg Big Take. Zeke Fox wrote it. Finance reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, in the magazine this week, the new issue, as we mentioned, it is online on the Bloomberg and on newsstands. It includes Business Week economics editor Peter Coy writing about how to make sense of the surprising inflation signals. And I got to say, Tim, this is kind of just what the doctor ordered after this week's inflation data and market reaction. Uh, yesterday, markets were freaked out. Today, maybe not so much. Not so much. Yeah, I think those numbers that we got about employment. 
uh, continuing unemployment claims, uh, actually throwing some throwing some water on that idea. Let's get right into it with Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. So, Peter, what's real? What's transitory? Yeah, I, this is a debate, and we <laughs> tried to go right down the middle on this one and give both sides. It'll let people judge for themselves, but it, it the Fed, of course, is on the transitory side of the argument, and. Uh, Steve Matthews, my Bloomberg colleague, has a good story about that today, looking at six reasons that the Fed is um, still fairly calm. I would say the number one reason the Fed is calm is that it looks at expectations of inflation, which have been anchored. Uh, for Up until really just about now, the Fed was worried that people would expect too low inflation. That's why it's constantly laboring to get inflation higher. Now that it's finally succeeding, instead of being patted on the back, it's getting criticized for letting inflation get out of control. So you can imagine be a little frustrating to Jay Powell these days. Well, wait. So because we're expecting more, inf- <laughs> you know, help me out here. I expect you, Peter Coy, to set it straight okay. <laughs> and make some right. sense out of it. So, right. I mean, some things are transitory. You and I have talked a right. million times about, folks, we're bouncing back from the economy being shut down a year ago. Right. And so... Yeah. Right? Like, some of this is normal. When does it become abnormal? Help, help us make sense of the yeah. data points that we're seeing. There, there are some, there's some uh, inflation that's caused by just pent-up demand pouring onto the market. So uh, Richard Claret, the vice chair of the Fed, uh, made the point yesterday that this is one data point, April uh, CPI number, and that you, you're going to expect some volatility in the important data series at times like this when the economy is recovering from a major, major dislocation. And just because a price goes up in one month doesn't mean it's going to keep going up after that. It could either stabilize at this new higher level or it could go back down, which means it's subtracting from the CPI in future months. And I guess um, I tend to lean against the new conventional wisdom, which seems to be that inflation is really totally fearsome and scary as heck, uh, lean more in the direction of saying, come on, calm down a little bit. This is not such a disaster. And I see that's the way the markets are reacting today. Right. Hey, folks, I've seen a few cycles before. Um, No, but Peter, what's interesting is, though, here you have a day, McDonald's boosting average U.S. wages to over $13 an hour. They're hiring 10,000 workers. Uh, Chipotle also uh, raised its average hourly wage to $15 an hour. Amazon hiring, and they're also paying more workers. Wage inflation is something we watch very closely. And we've had folks on air, our own, I think, Carl Rigadonna, maybe Mike McKee, saying that unless something has changed structurally in the ability of workers to demand higher wages, you know, longer term, you know, that's when we start to run into trouble. So, like, if wages notch upward by, say, $2 an hour, and then that becomes the new normal, that's, by definition, transitory. That's a reset to a kind of maybe more appropriate level. Maybe workers were getting underpaid. Hmm. Um, unless it gets to the point where it's going up and up and up and that and the companies are raising prices to compensate for it and then workers demand higher wages to compensate for higher prices, that's a, that's a wage price spiral, which is scary. And, and that is something to watch out for, for sure. But we're not seeing evidence of it yet. And that's why the Fed is like, for now, we're still on hold. So what's the important data point for, for us to keep an eye on? No, I, I would keep paying attention to... Um, wages 
Uh, my story includes the employment cost index, which is a better measure of inflation and wage wages than you get in the average hourly earnings figure in that comes with the um, um, jobs report last Friday. Uh, so yeah, watch that, and and that's high. Uh, not not denying it. Um, I would pay more attention to that than I would to say uh, what we're seeing in commodities. You know, gasoline is going to bounce mm. around. It, does, it always has. Same with iron, copper, lumber, cotton. These are things that are inherently volatile. And the closer you get to the consumer, the less volatile prices tend to be. So this, that's why the CPI is more important to look at than, say, for example, today's PPI, which is also on the high side. Good stuff. PPI I think being I, producer price right. index, of course. Yeah, right. I'm still scratching my head a little bit. Because I feel like it's it's the conversation, Peter. We have we have only got about twenty seconds, but we have it every day. And I know, and and I guess we have to have it, not just one month, but more months, right? Exactly. Okay. Let's let's wait. Let's watch a few more months and see what happens, and then we yeah. can make more of a decision. Peter Coy, thank you so much, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week. I want the data now, though. <sighs> patience, okay. patience, my son. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. We've got a few earnings coming your way. Disney will be breaking them down with our Beyond the Bell team in just a moment when they come out after the closing bell. In the meantime, we're pretty much at our best levels of the session when it comes to the S&P and Dow. We just heard Doug breaking down those numbers. NASDAQ still having a tougher time, but it too has bounced back. Still up more than one percentage point. Exactly. Much different than we were a little bit uh, earlier today. So let's get into it with Mira Pandit. Uh, she's global market strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, joining us on the phone in New York City. Mira, good to have you here with Tim and myself. So how do you distinguish today's trade where we got a hot inflation numbers, producer prices, versus yesterday's trade where we got a hot inflation number, which was consumer prices? Well, thanks for having me. And I think that ultimately investors are nervous that higher inflation means higher rates. But look, if the Fed is willing to stay the course on rates, then higher inflation that's coupled with higher growth doesn't need to be a bad thing. And I think that markets are, are waking up to that today. In fact, it can be a sign of, of healing and recovery. And I think that. But why didn't we see that way yesterday? Why didn't we feel that way? Are Peter Coy making the distinction that when it's closer to the consumer, higher prices maybe then mean higher wages, which mean higher prices, which mean higher wages, and you get into basically a wage price spiral? Well, I think that while we are seeing some legitimate wage pressure, overall, the Fed still looks like it wants to remain on target. And I think that. The gut reaction yesterday was this is going to go off into an environment where we're going to see higher rates right away. That's going to hurt things like the tech sector, and that's going to become a bigger market headwind. To today realizing, look, some of this is really just friction from the fact that the economy is reopening. You know, last year we turned the economy off with a light switch. You can't turn it back on without a bit of an adjustment period. We're seeing that in supply chains, um, and I think that a lot of that is going to work itself out throughout the course of the year. 
But to Carol's point, is, is today the difference between yesterday and today, those initial jobless claims that seem to be showing a strengthening labor market falling this morning to a pandemic low? Absolutely. I think that plays into it where a lot of investors were rattled by the jobs report last week coming in weaker than expected. Are people going to come off the sidelines without a bit of wage pressure? But when we look at the body of the different um, jobs indicators we have, jobless claims as one of them, we're seeing that there still is some strength in the labor uh, market overall. So we can't take one report and extrapolate too much off of that, especially when there's so much real time change going on. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's remember where we were roughly a year ago, right? We have to kind of put it into perspective. We fell off a cliff. I know I say this a million times, but we fell off a cliff. And now we have, you know, found our way back. Is part of it too, Mira, that the Fed has to be, and they've said this, I think, time and time again, that they are willing to risk having a little bit of inflation going a little bit hot to make sure that we don't fall back when it comes to economic growth because building or getting ourselves out of the hole is tougher than getting in the hole in the first place. That's right. You know, the Fed has said we are willing to, on average, get to 2% inflation, but we're willing to overshoot that a little bit because remember that inflation was incredibly subdued over the last decade. Um, You know, from a labor market perspective, not everybody in the labor market equally felt that healing um, until perhaps the the end stages of the recovery. So I think that the Fed really wants to make sure that there's proper healing from this pandemic before they make too many moves in terms of rates. I'm wondering about wage pressures, something that people we talk to over and over again tell us to keep an eye on. And, And I thought of it this morning when I saw the news from McDonald's that they're raising wages for the employees in company-owned stores, Mira, and and also uh, Amazon saying they're going to hire 75,000 people, and those wages will be higher uh, than they've been in the past. Is that a sign of wage of, of wage inflation? Sure. I, I do think we are going to see a little bit of wage inflation. I mean, what we saw in the jobs report, too, is that actually some of this is a bit more sticky than perhaps people originally thought. You know, we've been talking a lot about various compositional effects, but really when you strip those out and control for that kind of pre-pandemic, we are seeing a bit of an acceleration in wages. But similar to inflation, you have to compare it to the fact that wage inflation has been very subdued over the last 10 years. So we are recovering in that sense as well. What do you make when stocks and bonds are going up together? We don't necessarily necessarily see that correlation. But, you know, yields, we kind of settled down. We actually moved down today. I think when we see stocks and bonds moving together, it is this sign of recovery in that the stock market is feeling a lot of optimism about accelerating growth really robust profits, and equally that's being reflected in yields as, as inflation and growth get stronger. I think it's kind of an early cycle indicator that things are moving in the right direction. All right. So let's let's put all of these macro ideas to work. <laughs> You've got to do it over there at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. So clients come in, big institutional clients come in, uh, you know, high net worth individuals. Like, what do you say? Where is it that we want to be allocating new money at this point? I think from an investment standpoint, from an inflationary picture, when we're seeing higher inflation and higher growth coupled together, we are still leaning into some of the more cyclical or more value-oriented areas of the stock market. We've seen a robust recovery in particularly some of those cyclical areas, and there's more to go from an earnings standpoint. We're really focusing on quality companies with good earnings. Um, If the dollar continues to weaken international stocks, particularly because people haven't quite priced in their recovery yet, is um, I think has a lot of room to run. And then some of those classic inflation hedges, areas like commodities, 
real assets, you know, REIT infrastructure can also provide a lot of value to clients and also kind of help them sleep at night if they are worried about inflation pressures. The infrastructure play, how are you kind of strategizing around that when it comes to political action or policy action? So what we're thinking of in terms of how the policy implications are likely to take uh, place is that we're going to see a lot of negotiations over the next month and probably throughout the summer. If any part of the infrastructure bill is going to pass through budget reconciliation, which just requires that simple majority, so effectively only Democratic support, um, that can happen anytime before really September 30th. So I think we're going to have a long lead time in which mm. there could be some bipartisan agreement or there could be, you know, portions passed through reconciliation. Either way, it stands to reason that a lot of these initiatives um, are likely to, to play out and pass ultimately in, in one form or the other. Mira, are you, are you recommending that clients keep cash on the sidelines right now? Like there's going to be some sort of further dip, at least in equities, where things will be less expensive if they want to get in? Look, I think that yesterday, today, the last couple of days when we had seen a correction represents a good time to get in. I, I wouldn't recommend being in cash right now just because of all the momentum we're seeing um, within the economy and the fact that even if we do see a bit of a dip or a bit of volatility, the hmm. fundamental backdrop is still so strong that I don't think it's worth trying to time in and out of the market and get the timing right. It's better to just get in sooner um, and, and reap the benefits, even if there is a bit of choppiness. Uh, just quickly, 20 seconds, where don't you want to be in this market environment right now? Just quickly. I think we want to pay attention within fixed income to some of those longer duration bonds as we do see yields rising. So we really want to head towards the shorter end of the curve and, and shorten up in duration. That's really one of the areas where um, investors are going to want to be a little bit careful. All right. Really appreciate uh, your thoughts, the macro ideas, and then putting it to work. Mira Pondet, she's global market strategist over JP Morgan Asset Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.